I am so happy to be here. I think it's wonderful, Linda, that you've organized the lecture here and the lecture at Boston University in memory of your husband. And I feel very honored and privileged to be able to speak about his work and about my father's work and about Judaism and the kind of Judaism that these two great figures stood for. I'm glad to meet Susan and, of course, that your family. I haven't met your children hadn't arrived when I first came in, but I hope to meet them afterwards and to be with this wonderful congregation in this unbelievably magnificent synagogue. And somebody has to write a history of the synagogue and its architecture. And I thank you, Rabbi. It's so good to meet you, both Jonathan and Beth Singer, both rabbis. Uh, and it's good to be with you. And of course, I thank the Consul General, Peter Oden, for what you have said and for your welcome. I appreciate it very much. And it is uh, indeed very good to be with you this evening. And as a representative, sure, can everybody hear okay? Is the hearing sound all right? Good. Okay. Sorry. Bring it closer. Mm -hmm. And as a representative of a very good government, Angela Merkel is indeed someone who really works daily, and it's very clear on behalf of the Jewish people and the state of Israel. And we appreciate it very much. She's a loyal friend. Um, I've put here some, I want to show you some pictures. And the first one that you have up here may be familiar to some of you, it should be. This famous painting by Moritz Oppenheim. Does anybody know this 19th century painting? No, well you really should, it's a, isn't it great? This is a famous painting of a famous scene. One of the most important scenes in Jewish history and German history. This is a painting of Moses Mendelssohn and Gotthold Lessing. Everybody knows, yes? And you know their famous friendship in the late 18th century. You know Moses Mendelssohn is considered the founding figure in the field of Jewish philosophy, modern Jewish philosophy. Moses Mendelssohn, the great figure, really, and, and leader of his people in the 18th century as well. And Gotthold Lessing, you know, you know Lessing. Lessing, the theologian, the playwright, the intellectual, the gadfly of his day, a Christian, a very important figure, and among other things, he's the author of the play Nathan the Wise, which he wrote with the Merchant of Venice in front of him in order to refute that image of Shylock and substitute instead Nathan, Nathan the Jew who was wise and tolerant and kind and compassionate. And he based it on Moses Mendelssohn. You know, Nathan the Wise is required reading in all German high schools. Everybody knows Nathan the Wise. And this friendship is a symbol. It was a symbol for Jews in Germany in the 1930s, but always. And in 1988, I was in Berlin. It was the 50th anniversary of Kristallnacht, November 9th. And I was fortunate to be able to attend the main lecture that evening that was delivered by Professor Walter Jens. You know that is, yes? Walter Jens from the University of Tübingen, a very distinguished figure. And he wanted to speak about Kristallnacht 50 years later. And what did he talk about? He talked about Mendelssohn and Lessing. It was very moving. It was a very special evening. But it was also disturbing that the one image he could come up with, the one relationship, the big symbol, was that one, and it was from a long time ago. It was from yeah, 200 years earlier. We don't have that many, unfortunately, in German Jewish history, those kinds of friendships and extraordinary, extraordinary people who came together as Christian and Jew. And you understand, of course, that this was startling in the 18th century, that a Christian and a Jew sat together played chess, discussed philosophy, and you see the wife bringing in the tea in the background, right? Yeah. All right. I won't even, <laughs> I won't go there. That's all right. Here we have a picture of Rabbi Trepp speaking, 
Speak, okay, you can read this, this is good. Speaking to lawmakers in Germany at the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. And I'll give you the next one. Here he is at the University of Mainz. Leo Trepp was somebody who created many relationships. And I think it's important to think about bookends here. There's Mendelssohn and Lessing at the beginning of the modern period of Jewish history. And here we have Rabbi Trepp in this post-war era and the many friendships that he developed, the many students that he came to have, the many people that he influenced. And what I want to pay attention to in my lecture is the nature of his influence. And I will add to that the influence of my father, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, standing here with the Reverend Martin Luther King, who became my father's very good friend in 1963 when they first met at a conference in Chicago. They met at a conference on religion and race. Two words, my father said, that should never be uttered in the same breath because they're diametrically opposed. Let me tell you that when I was growing up, religion and race did seem indeed diametrically opposed. And it seemed to me that if there was any single force that could overcome racism, it was religion. It was the Bible. It was the words of the prophets. I had a hard time in Hebrew school and in the Orthodox yeshiva I attended. But when I heard Martin Luther King speak, or my father, about the Bible, when I heard Dr. King speak, and the way he quoted the prophets, but you didn't know it was a quotation because his words and the words of the prophets came together like this. And that inspired me, and that saved the Bible for me. My father came from Warsaw. These are his parents. He came from a Hasidic family. He was the, hmm? I'm sorry, I have to, I have to push both buttons. <laughs> came from a Hasidic lineage of great, important Hasidic rebbes, some of the most important spiritual leaders in the history of Judaism. Here we see Rabbi Trepp with the boys and girls of his congregation in Oldenburg when he set up a school for them when Jews were shut out, Jewish children were shut out from German schools. My father is here with his older brother in Warsaw as a child. They were very religious, very pious. My father said he grew up in Warsaw surrounded by people of religious nobility. And I think that's a very special phrase that we should keep in mind. What does it mean to be a person of religious nobility? And wouldn't we all want our children to grow up surrounded by people of religious nobility. Who are these people, and where do we find that kind of influence for our children today? These here are bought and bar mitzvah, boys and girls, with Rabbi Trapp. And I think he would have agreed with the statement that my father made in his speech called, No Religion is an Island. And my father delivered at Union Theological Seminary, the Protestant Seminary in New York. My father studied in Germany from 1927 to 1938. He came to this country in March of 1940. And in 1964, he gave this speech where he said, the founder of my congregation was Abraham. My rabbi is Moses. Don't you think Rabbi Trepp would have agreed? I speak as a person who was able to leave Warsaw, for Rabbi Trepp, it was Germany, 
Able to leave Warsaw, the city in which I was born, just six weeks before the disaster began, my destination was New York. It would have been Auschwitz or Treblinka. It's where my father's mother and his three sisters were taken. My father says, I am a brand plucked from the fire of an altar of Satan, on which millions of lives were exterminated to evil's greater glory, and on which so much else was consumed, the divine image of so many human beings. Many people's faith in the God of justice and compassion, and much of the secret and power of attachment to the Bible, bred and cherished in the hearts of men for nearly 2,000 years. My father and Rabbi, Rabbi Trepp shared a great deal. They both had studied in Germany, and they knew each other in Berlin. They studied at the Hochschule, the Reform Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin. My father also went to the Orthodox Rabbinical Seminary. My father was one of the few who went back and forth between the two seminaries. They didn't speak to each other, those two seminaries. And what's funny is they were both located on a street in Berlin that was called Artillery Street. So they knew each other. They were both students and enthusiastic. And I imagine Rabbi Trepp felt exactly the way my father did, that Berlin in the late 1920s and early 30s, Berlin was the center of the intellectual universe. So much was going on in Berlin in those days. For both Rabbi Trepp and my father, the day began with prayer. They were religiously observant. You know, some people say, Oh, he is a strictly observant Jew. I would say that these two men were lovingly observant Jews. Both of them drew their social commitments, their social activism from the Torah, from the prophets. That was the basis. That was clear for them both. And both engaged in Jewish-Christian dialogue. If there's something sad, it's that the dormitory for the students of Protestant theology in Berlin was the building next door to the Reform Rabbinical School, and yet there was no contact in those days. I want you to keep something in mind, which is just how significant it means for a Jew to engage in Jewish-Christian dialogue after World War II, a Jew who studied in Germany in the 30s. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Aryan Jesus, Christian theologians in the Bible in Nazi Germany. I looked at those Christian theologians who supported Hitler, and I'll tell you what I found. It was all based on archival work because nobody talked about this after the war. But here were professors of Protestant theology, some Catholic as well, mostly Protestant. And what did they do? They tried to de-Judaize Christianity. They set up an institute. They published their own version of the New Testament, purged of all Jewish references. They had their own hymnal, purged of Hebrew words, you know, Hebrew words like hallelujah. Yeah? They had a catechism where they said Jesus was an Aryan, the savior of Aryan people, and that Hitler was carrying out the mission of Jesus, which was the destruction of Judaism. The Old Testament for them was a Jewish book that had no place in the Christian Bible. There were, of course, some professors of Old Testament who were themselves Nazis, such as Johannes Hempel, professor in Berlin and editor of the Zeitschrift für Altestamentische Wissenschaft, the most important journal of Old Testament scholarship. And Hempel, many others said, can't get rid of the Old Testament. They would be out of a job, you know? 
So they said it's not really a Jewish book, it's an anti-Semitic book, the Old Testament, because the prophets are always condemning Israel for its sins. So it's safe for a Christian Nazi to keep the Old Testament. This is how they're talking. My father, Rabbi Trepp, heard this. This was the atmosphere. This was a pervasive atmosphere amongst Christians in Germany in their days, in the 30s. And I think it's extraordinary for a Jew, after hearing this from Protestants, to nonetheless return to a Jewish-Christian dialogue. That, I think, is extraordinary. Let's keep that context in mind. My father and Rabbi Trepp also shared friendships. Leo Beck, Martin Buber, Mordechai Kaplan. I would have to add that there takes a certain courage for people after the war to rebuild their lives. My father got married to my mother, a concert pianist, 1946. They had a child, Rabbi Trepp married, and also had an only child, a daughter. Daughters are wonderful, right? <laughs> and here's my father talking with some students in our apartment on a Shabbat afternoon. The Sabbath was so important. As Gunda quoted her husband, he starts his day by praying to remember who he is, a Jew. And so too comes every week the Sabbath to rejuvenate us, to rejuvenate our soul, to give our souls a chance. This is from my father's book, The Sabbath. Gallantly, ceaselessly, quietly, we must fight for inner liberty. The Sabbath is the presence of God in the world, open to the soul of man. The world's survival depends upon the holiness of the seventh day. That's an extraordinary statement. And I would like to say that both Rabbi Trepp and my father were inspired by the Jews who came before them and proud of their heritage. This is my uncle, my father's brother-in-law and cousin, the Kapitschnitzer Rebbe, who came to New York from Vienna. And here he is with my father and with his son in the middle. My father insisted that we remember the inner spiritual life that had been destroyed in Europe. And he wrote a small book called The Earth is the Lord's. The little Jewish communities in Eastern Europe were like sacred texts, open before the eyes of God, so close were their houses of worship to Mount Sinai. In the days of Moses, Israel had a revelation of God. In the days of the Baal Shem Tov, God had a revelation of Israel. Suddenly there was revealed a holiness in Jewish life that had accumulated in the course of many centuries. Always to remember European Judaism, what we had lost and what we retained. I think that linked both of them. My father was still young, and beardless when he wrote those books. He married my mother in 1946, and he published an extraordinary number of books in the next few years. The Earth is the Lord's, The Sabbath, Man is Not Alone, God in Search of Man, Man's Quest for God, all in a few years. And that's because he studied all the time. And here he is at his study. Now at the same time, it's very clear that my father and Rabbi Trepp were not always happy with the state of Jewish life or religious life in our world. Here is page one of my father's book, God in Search of Man. 
It is customary to blame secular science and anti-religious philosophy for the eclipse of religion in modern society. It would be more honest to blame religion for its own defeats. Religion declined not because it was refuted, but because it became irrelevant, dull, oppressive, insipid. And I have to just tell you something. I have a lot of students now at Dartmouth who have one parent who's Jewish, one who's Christian, and they come to me and they tell me their parents say, go to church, go to synagogue. When you grow up, you can choose which religion you want. I had one student who said to me, you know, I go to church, I go to synagogue, and I always hear the same thing from the rabbi, the minister. They always say, the family is important. She said, what's the difference between the two religions? You know, the family is important. Is anybody against family? Of course not. This is what we mean by insipid. <laughs> when faith is completely replaced by creed, worship by discipline, love by habit, when the crisis of today is ignored because of the splendor of the past, when faith becomes an heirloom rather than a living fountain, when religion speaks only in the name of authority rather than with the voice of compassion, its message becomes meaningless. You know, my father said, there are a lot of Jews, and I'm sure you all know many, who like to be Jewish the way their grandparents were Jewish. And they put on a black hat, and they put on a black coat, and um, they make worse pious and tzitzis and so forth. They're very, very orthodox. They get excited about this. My father said, you have to be Jewish the way you are as a Jew. It has to be authentic to you. You can't be Jewish the way your grandparents were Jewish because that would be spiritual plagiarism. Isn't that great? Judaism has to keep growing and developing. And there were times when I would go to my father and say, it's not fair that a woman can't study or can't be included in the minion. You call to the Torah and he would say, you're right, things have to change. And in fact, I know Rabbi Trepp was very committed to women's equality in Judaism, halachically too. And my father once said to me when I said, oh, what should I be when I grow up? He said, why don't you become a rabbi? I said, I don't think they'll ever ordain rabbis. He said, yes, things are changing. And when I wanted a bat mitzvah, he organized it. So it's possible, not only possible, it's an imperative to be both pious and look to the future and recognize change as an expression of authenticity. Here's my father in his later years. And I think both Rabbi Trepp and my father recognized that after the war, nothing can be the same. Philosophy cannot be the same after Auschwitz and Hiroshima. And notice my father always said, Auschwitz and Hiroshima. That's unusual among Jewish thinkers. Certain assumptions about humanity have proved to be specious, have been smashed. What has long been regarded as commonplace has proved to be utopianism. Philosophy to be relevant must offer us a wisdom to live by, relevant not only in the isolation of our study rooms, but also in moments of facing staggering cruelty and the threat of disaster. The question of man must be pondered not only in the halls of learning, but also in the presence of inmates of concentration camps and in the sight of the mushroom of a nuclear explosion. Philosophy has a moral obligation, as do all disciplines, 
And we had in our home a volume of Conrad Lorenz and a volume of Martin Heidegger and so many others who were Nazis. I think the single most frequently discussed book in my home by my parents, friends, who were mostly European refugee scholars from Germany, the single most frequently discussed book was the great book by Max Weinreich called Hitler's Professors that was published right after the end of the war. And they used to sit at the table and talk often, as you know, German Jews talked about Germany, German culture, German poetry and literature. They didn't really talk about American literature, but it was Goethe and Schiller and Thomas Mann and Rilke. And then they would say, that professor so-and-so that we studied with, that he became a Nazi. It's unbelievable. How could that be? I think the German Jewish refugees who came to this country brought with them the great refined German Jewish scholarship, the brilliance of German universities, and also something extraordinary of German Jewish culture. You know, there was one day when I was having lunch at the Hillel, when I was teaching in Cleveland, and a man came in to get his lunch, an older man, and I saw him from across the room, and I knew this was a German Jew. And I knew it because of the way he moved, the way he got his lunch, the way he interacted, even though I couldn't hear him, I didn't hear his accent. But there was a refinement that characterized German Jews, a refinement, a cultivation of spirit that they brought with them. And I saw that as a child, and I remembered it always. What about post-war? Rabbi Trepp went back to Germany. He went back with, I think, tremendous courage. He went back to teach and to talk to young people and to be an example of a Jew. That can't be more important, that's the most important, whoops, to set an example for people to know. My father wouldn't go back to Germany. He said that if he went back, every tree and every stone would remind him of what happened, and he would be destroyed by that. He couldn't do it. But instead, he did become involved in political work of different kinds, Let's see, both, I think I'm going to skip some of these, those family pictures, <laughs> but I'll take you to my father's work in interfaith. Here is my father with Cardinal Bea from the Second Vatican Council. And I'll just show you now Rabbi Trepp at an interwar, excuse me, an interreligious service and I'll come back also to Rabbi Trepp and some of his involvement. Let me just say a word about the Second Vatican Council and its significance. From Enemy to Brother is the title of a new book by John Connolly. How did it happen that this revolution took place in Christian teachings about Jews and Judaism? Going from the insistence that all Jews have to be converted or they would have no place in heaven, they would have no salvation, the Jews were all responsible for the murder of Christ, for deicide. And let me tell you, I had a student recently in my medieval Jewish history course who went for 12 years to a Catholic parochial school. And when I mentioned something having to do with deicide charges in the Middle Ages, she said, what are you talking about? The Romans did it. 
She had never even heard that anyone ever said the Jews were responsible. Now that was extraordinary. It's a revolution. My father <clears throat> became involved with the American Jewish Committee in negotiations with the Vatican. He met with Pope Paul VI on more than one occasion. He held meetings that were supposed to try to help the church formulate a new statement regarding Jews. The first draft of the statement, which is called Nostratate, was a good statement. And then came a second draft. And in the second draft, there was a hope expressed for the ultimate conversion of the Jews. And my father said, I would rather go to Auschwitz and give up my faith. And I remember when I heard that, being as a child terrified, was there still in Auschwitz? Was this possible? My father then went to meet with Pope Paul VI. They spent a half hour talking. And at the end, my father was told later, the Pope took his pen and crossed out that statement. Maybe I can tell you something also of the importance of personal relationships and why it was so important for Rabbi Trepp to go to Germany and to be involved in interreligious work. I wasn't present at those services, but I'll tell you something that I do remember from my childhood. Maybe I'll tell you, can I tell you two stories? A funny story and a more serious story, yes? So the Father Morlian was a special Vatican envoy who came to New York to meet with my father in his office, and it was a Friday afternoon, and they met, and they discussed issues, and it was great. And my father enjoyed him as an outgoing, very affable person, and he asked him, would you like to come home with me for Friday night Shabbat dinner? And Father Morlian said, yes, of course. And so my father called my mother and said, set an extra place at the table. And my mother was happy to do that. My mother was a pianist. She spent a lot of time every day at the piano. We had a lot of chamber music in our home. I was filled with music, actually. And so I would say, how can I say this? My mother was not an enthusiastic cook. <laughs> she would be the first to admit it. She wouldn't be mad at me. Anyway, we had the usual Friday night dinner, chicken soup and chicken and vegetables. My mother's brother was a pathologist who did research on heart disease, so we had no salt. Uh, and, and, <laughs> things were very well cooked to get all the germs out, etc. So it was okay. Anyway, that was. <laughs> but Father Morlian came, and it was a very lively evening conversation at the Shabbat table. And when the meal was over, Father Morlian thanked my parents, and he said, "This is wonderful." But of course, you know, we Catholics are not supposed to eat meat on Friday. And oh, my parents were so upset and embarrassed, and they apologized, so sorry. Father Morley and said, don't worry, there's a higher law, not to embarrass your host. <laughs> it was fine. But then, Father Morley wrote to my father some months later, he said he was coming to New York, and again, my father invited him for Shabbat dinner, and he agreed. And this time, my mother had warning. So immediately, she called up her friend, Fanny Ushko in Queens, to get recipes for fish. And she decided to make three different kinds of fish, and I even went with her to Bloomingdale's to get one of those serving dishes for fish that looks like a fish. You know, I don't know what. <laughs> and Father Morlian came to dinner, and there were some other guests, and it was a very lively and a dairy, yeah, milk and dairy Friday night Shabbat dinner with the fish and so on. And at the end of the meal, Father Morlian said, "Thank you. It was just wonderful, wonderful to be with you, but." I was hoping for a traditional Shabbat chicken dinner.
I'll tell you one other story, if I may. You know, in those days, it wasn't very common for Christians to go to a Jewish home, religious home of a rabbi for a Shabbat meal. It was unusual. And there were, in those days, nuns in full habits, priests and ministers. Bill Coffin used to come, and my father would teach him the words of the Hamotzi in Hebrew. But I'll tell you, when they came to our home, and I remember so vividly from those days, I had the feeling that they felt they were on a pilgrimage. And I am sure that those Germans who met Rabbi Trepp at a prayer service or in a class that he taught, or simply to be in his presence, may have had the same feeling. To be on a pilgrimage to the womb of your own religion as a Christian. It was striking, I know, for those nuns and priests to hear my father make Kiddush and Hamotzi, to see him pray, and I'm sure with Rabbi Trepp as well. No one said anything negative about Christianity. There were no debates. My father never accused anyone or brought up the issue of the Vatican and the Holocaust, nothing like that. But I could see in their faces that for them, all of a sudden, they realized they couldn't possibly believe that this Jew would not go to heaven. They couldn't. It was a kind of theological revolution, earthquake for them, to realize that they had something to learn about God from a Jew. That was amazing. Just from being in the presence of a rabbi, like Rabbi Trapp from my father. There's something else, too, that binds them both, and that's Israel. My father met with the Pope in March of 1971, Pope Paul VI, and he wrote a small diary, and I'll just read you. The Pope smiled joyously with a radiant face, shook my hand cordially with both hands, telling me that he is reading my books, that my books are very spiritual and very beautiful, and that Catholics should read my books. I told him how grateful we Jews are for the understanding he has shown for the spiritual link of the Jewish people with the holy city of Jerusalem. All of Jewish history is a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And the union of the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem we regard as a sign of divine grace and providence in this age of darkness. The Pope then said, I will remember your words. I hope that you and I will meet together in Jerusalem. Imagine what it meant for a Jew from Germany to see Israel come into being. It felt miraculous. Problems, of course. My father said, you know, we Jews have addressed the national question, but we've neglected the individual the individual Jew and his problems, what do we do? Individual Jews need attention from the Jewish community too, not just politically and not just communally, but spiritually. My father's friendships extended to nuns who came to ask him what he thought about whether they should continue wearing a full habit. He thought they should keep it, but they didn't. <laughs> And here is a picture of the funeral of Reinhold Niebuhr, the great Protestant theologian, 
who asked my father to deliver the eulogy at his funeral. My father is here speaking at a, one of many meetings of Jewish Federation leaders, Jewish organizations. But I want us to come back to the question of religion and race, because both my father and Rabbi Trepp encountered a really horrific situation in Germany in the 1930s when they found theologians spouting words of racism. In this conference where my father met Dr. King, he opened his speech by saying, at the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. Moses' words were, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. While Pharaoh retorted, who is the Lord that I should heed this voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And my father went on to say, it was easier for the children of Israel to leave Egypt and cross the Red Sea than it is for many Negroes to walk across a university campus. And this is 63. And you may have read recently about the incidents at the University of Mississippi, yes, in the newspapers. Few of us seem to realize how insidious, how radical, how universal and evil racism is. Few of us realize that racism is man's gravest threat to man, the maximum of hatred for a minimum of reason, the maximum of cruelty for a minimum of thinking. Racism is an eye disease, a cancer of the soul. The problem is how to stop the profanation of God's name by dishonoring I put in African-Americans, he said Negroes in those days. Racism is an evil of tremendous power, but God's will transcends all powers. Surrender to despair is to surrender to evil. It is important to feel anxiety. It is sinful to wallow in despair. You used to tell me that all the time. Despair is a sin. It certainly prevents you from acting, but despair it's a way of denying that God indeed transcends. My father was asked by Dr. King to come to Selma for this famous march for voting rights. We received a telegram from Dr. King on Friday afternoon right before Shabbat, and it was a very busy Shabbat for us and a nervous one. And after my father made Havdalah Saturday night, we went downstairs, and I remember very vividly because I caught it in my mind. We knew the dangers of Selma. Everybody knew about Bloody Sunday a couple of weeks before. And I didn't know if he would come back. And he kissed me goodbye and he turned around and he walked and got into a taxi to go to the airport. And he went to Selma and when he came back he wrote in a diary that Dr. King had told him, this was the greatest day of my life. And my father said he felt a sense of holiness in this march. It reminded him of walking with Hasidic Rebbe's in Eastern Europe. He came back and he said, I felt my legs were praying. And they became good friends, my father and Dr. King. I'm sorry, that's the march from Selma. My father brought Dr. King to speak a few months later on behalf of Soviet Jews at the Concord Hotel. My father was also invited to speak at a gathering of civil rights leaders at the White House by President John F. Kennedy. 
in June of 63. And this is a telegram my father sent in response. Do you remember telegrams? They don't exist anymore. You remember telegram language? I look forward to privilege of being president meeting tomorrow 4 p.m. Likelihood exists that Negro problem will be like the weather. Everybody talks about it, but nobody does anything about it. Please demand of religious leaders personal involvement, not just solemn declaration. We forfeit right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. Church, synagogue have failed. They must repent. Ask of religious leaders to call for national repentance and personal sacrifice. Let religious leaders donate one month's salary toward fund for Negro housing and education. I propose to you, Mr. President, declare state of moral emergency. A Marshall Plan for aid to Negroes is becoming a necessity. The hour calls for moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. That was my father's telegram to the president. Rabbi Trepp also became involved, and his language was the language of the Bible, of Jewish tradition, and of the prophets. And I am sure that he also would have put his response in the same terms as my father, that the opposite of good is not evil, the opposite of good is indifference. Both of them surely saw indifference in Germany in the 1930s. In a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Indeed, Rabbi Trepp said, and he was right, we don't take the sins of the fathers and put them on the children. We don't hold the next generation guilty. But there is a responsibility, I think, a responsibility that the consul has articulated very well this evening, a responsibility of all Germans, of all generations, and I think we, too, as Jews, have a responsibility to engage with those Germans, to talk to them, and to show them what it is to be a Jew. One of the big questions in my childhood at home was whether Dr. King should speak out against the war in Vietnam. Would it alienate the president? Would it alienate the Congress? What should the right stance be? Political issues were always moral issues, moral debates. And they were big ones, because my father said, small-mindedness brings the exile of the Shekhinah, of God's presence. Small-mindedness, think big. Literal-mindedness, too, exiles God. Dr. King came to speak out against the war in Vietnam in 1967, in April was one year before he was assassinated. He came to speak under the auspices of an organization my father had formed called Clergy and Laymen Concerned About Vietnam. I'll move. Here's a rather rare photograph from Riverside Church from that evening. I have to tell you that there's a wonderful documentary about Dr. King's speech on Vietnam that was made by the journalist Tavis Smiley. And it's available on the internet. And I urge everyone to watch it because this was one of Dr. King's three greatest speeches. 
and it was an extraordinary night. I was there that night. It was an extraordinary electric night. He did something tremendous, something very brave in speaking out against the war. My father also felt that this war was a terrible thing. The war had turned out to be a series of atrocities. I won't read this to you, but I'll just tell you, my father once went to a demonstration against the war, and a journalist came over to him and said, what are you doing here, an unfriendly journalist? And my father said, I'm here because I can't pray. And the journalist said, what are you talking about? You can't pray, so you go to a demonstration? And my father said, whenever I open the prayer book, I see before me images of children burning from napalm. How can I pray? How can I pray? Dr. King came to the Concord Hotel in 1968. It was a convention of rabbis, conservative rabbis, who were honoring my father, and they asked Dr. King to give the keynote address. And that night, we had dinner in one room, and then we all went into the auditorium in the next room. And when Dr. King came into the room, this thousand rabbis and their wives, only male rabbis in those days, stood up and linked arms and saying, we shall overcome in Hebrew, <laughs> which is something we used to do often in those days. And my father introduced Dr. King. Where in America do we, today, do we hear a voice like the voice of the prophets of Israel? Martin Luther King is a sign that God has not forsaken the United States of America. God has sent him to us. His presence is the hope of America. His mission is sacred, his leadership of supreme importance to every one of us. My father had invited Dr. King and his family to join us for the Passover Seder that year, which would have been just days later, and he was assassinated. Shortly before Passover, my father flew to Memphis, and here he is at the funeral. We all went to the funeral in Atlanta. Let me conclude by saying something about the overriding importance for both Rabbi Trepp and for my father. That is, that to be a Jew isn't just to be, but to stand for, to stand for certain principles. What do we stand for as Jews? My father says, it takes three things to create a sense of significant being, God, a soul, and a moment. And the three are always present. Sometimes in Jewish life today, we don't pay enough attention to God, to the soul, and to the moments that we need. When I took my children to enroll them at the Solomon Schechter School in Boston, and they said, what are you looking for most of all in the school? I said, Ahavas Hashem, love of God. My father spoke often in very intimate ways and in elusive ways. He didn't always spell things out. We don't have to spell things out necessarily as Jews. Some things are too intimate, too private to be spoken of too easily. And the intimacy that my father himself experienced at prayer, for instance, comes through often in his own writings. I find people sending me emails several times a week and telling me, people I don't know, that they read a book of his and how they felt 
that he understood them, almost as if he was reading them in some way, because of the intimacy he was able to create. It's an intimacy and a sense of character of what it is to be a Jew. And I want to just move now through some to Rabbi Trapp, his last lecture at a synagogue, the one that survived a pogrom, the home city of Mainz. These kinds of personal encounters are so very important. There is something extraordinary about what it is to be a Jew as a source of inspiration. My father used to sometimes ask his students, is gelatin kosher? And the students, with great joy, the rabbinical students, would start to argue, is gelatin, if you make it in a chemistry lab, and is it chemicals and not a horse's hooves and so on, is it? And they were very enthusiastic about the discussion, and then he would stop them and say, tell me, are nuclear weapons kosher? And they were quiet. They didn't know where to begin the discussion because they hadn't thought about it. And that's because what's important is to know the questions. If religion is an answer to ultimate questions, my father said, we must know what the questions are. And too often, we as Jews have forgotten the questions. We talk about the wrong kinds of issues. It's not about gelatin. It's about nuclear weapons. And we forget that. But to be a Jew is to stand for Jewish tradition. And it's to stand for Jewish history, and it's to stand for certain moral values. But more than that, it's to be responsible. One thing that's the opposite of being a religious person, one thing is to be complacent. Because a religious person can never be complacent or indifferent. A religious person can't say, look what a good person I am because a religious person is always struggling. I'm not living up. I haven't done enough. Maybe I said the wrong thing. I didn't do what I should have done. I didn't treat this person properly. I'll tell you one story, and I'm going to end. I'll just tell you a story that my father told me over and over again. It was about the Hasidic ancestor that he was named for, the Abda Rav, the Hasidic Rebbe in Ukraine who died in the early 1800s, 1825. People used to come to him from all over, every day, dozens and dozens of people, and ask him to pray for them. a sick child, for a husband who didn't have a job, for someone who would become a widow or a widower. And one day his assistant asked him, how do you remember all of these people and their problems? And he said, when someone comes to me and they pour out their troubles, I open my heart. And the problems come into my heart and they make a scar. And when I go to pray, I open my heart to God and I say, look at all these scars. You know, I think my father was the kind of person who listened in that way, and I think Rabbi Trepp was as well. And I think all of us want to talk to someone like that. I felt that from my father, that whatever I said to him, his heart took it in. That's what we all crave, and we all crave to be that kind of person. My father used to tease his audiences and say, when did God break the Ten Commandments? And they couldn't imagine. He said, it says in the Ten Commandments, don't make an image of man. But when God created human beings, we were created in God's image. 
May God break the Ten Commandments. We are the only image of God. And what does it mean to be an image of God? That is, a person of religious nobility. To be a reminder, a reminder to other people of God's presence. And so, let me conclude by reading something from a speech my father once gave called Existence and Celebration. We should have gratitude for the sublime calling of being a Jew and seek to illumine the mysterious meaning of that calling. Such seeking cannot be done by each of us going alone. There is a legacy to convey, an excellence of the mind, a sensitivity to the demand for sanctification of time, for quiet exaltation. Being a Jew makes anonymity impossible. A Jew represents, stands for, proclaims. The world never sees the Jew as an individual, but rather as a representative of a whole tradition, of a whole people. A Jew is never alone. Who was a Jew? A person whose integrity decays when unmoved by the knowledge of wrong done to other people. Who was a Jew? A person in travail with God's dreams and designs. A person to whom God is a challenge, not an abstraction. A Jew is called upon to know of God's stake in history, to be involved in the sanctification of time and in building the Holy Land, to cultivate passion for justice and the ability to experience the arrival of Friday evening as an event. Who was a Jew? A person who knows how to recall and to keep alive what is holy in our people's past and to cherish the promise and the vision of redemption in the days to come. Who is a Jew? A witness to the transcendence and presence of God. A person in whose life Abraham would feel at home. A person for whom Rabbi Akiva would feel deep affinity. A person of whom the Jewish martyrs of all ages would not be ashamed. Such a person was my father, such a person was Rabbi Trepp, such a person we should all strive to be. Thank you very much. Well, we so want to thank Dr. Heschel for coming to teach us here in San Francisco to share both this history and this challenge in the present of how to be morally grand and how to make Judaism vibrant and meaningful for our day and for days to come. We thought we'd take a moment now to, uh, you said to have questions, to uh, think of the right religious question. But in this case, the question that you want to ask her or a response to give her as we take a few moments for dialogue. So I'll come around with the microphone and... Uh, would somebody like to ask or say something? I can't see with this. 
Dr. Heschel, I'd like to know more about your own work. Could you explain a little bit about your current research and scholarship? I'd be happy to. <laughs> so um, the what question was, uh, what, what, to say something about the research that I'm doing, the, the scholarship that I do, uh, and I'm happy to say a word about that. So I, uh, I wrote my first book on Abraham Geiger, who was one of the most important Jewish historians and theologians and rabbis of the 19th century in Germany. He lived from 1810 to 1874. He was a brilliant, brilliant original scholar, extraordinarily creative. He was also one of the founders of Reform Judaism, one of the major figures, and really um, an extraordinary person who wrote his first book on the Quran. It was a magnificent book published in 1833 showing the Jewish influences and parallels uh, between rabbinic literature and the Quran, passages from the Midrash and the Mishnah and so on. It was hailed all over Europe as an extraordinary work. He went on to write much more about Jewish history, especially the Second Temple period, and engaged also in, um, let's say, scholarship on Christ early Christianity, the origins of Christianity within Judaism. He was one of the first to say many things, and his work has lasting value to this day. He was really the greatest of all of the historians for his creativity and originality. He's really a brilliant scholar. Anyway, um, my next book was about uh, Protestant theologians in Nazi Germany who supported Hitler, and it was based on archival archives that I found in the former East Germany, but also in West Germany, in church archives and state archives, university archives, etc. And it traced the engagement of professors of German theology, Protestant theology, in this process of de-Judaizing Christianity, and also their post-war careers in the, in the, in the, in the GDR, in, the, in East Germany and in West Germany, as professors and as church leaders. And now I'm writing a book about Jewish scholarship on Islam, because German Jews actually started the field of Islamic studies. Abraham Geiger, who had studied at the University of Bonn, and then Gustav Weil, who was from Heidelberg. Uh, and these were two extraordinary scholars of early Islam. Um, Gustav Weil wrote a book on the chronology of the Quran, the surahs, which was the basis for Theodor Nulke's book on the chronology of the Quran, famous book. Uh, but they came to dominate the field of Islamic studies by the 1920s. They held, I think by 1933, something like 30% of the professorships in Germany in the field of Islamic studies are held by, by Jews. And of course, after 33, the field was basically destroyed. Angelika Neuwert, who is one of the most extraordinary scholars uh, that we have in any field, I would say, but a scholar of the Quran in Berlin today, just retired. Angelika Neuwert has been trying to revive that tradition of German Jewish scholarship, which was quite extensive. By the way, I mentioned just a few of the names, but there are so many. And not only that, I'll just mention one other. Forgive me, I'll stop now, but I just have to tell you, there was Josef Horowitz, who was the son of Marcus Horowitz, a famous rabbi in Frankfurt. Josef Horowitz studied in Berlin under Edward Zaho in Oriental Studies, and then he went to become a professor of Arabic at a Muslim university in India, the Aligarh University. He taught from 1907 to 1914, and then with the outbreak of the First World War, he came back to Germany, he was a professor in Frankfurt, and so on. But there were professors from Germany, Jews, who went to Muslims, Muslim countries, to Egypt, Al-Azhar University, and so on. And I find it an extraordinary, extraordinary event. It was a Jew who translated the Quran into modern German, Ludwig Ullmann in 1840, et cetera, et cetera, into Hebrew, and so on. Okay, I'm sorry. It's, it's a great, it's just such a great, amazing phenomenon. Yes, and they are. That's, I have other things too, but okay. Thank you so much for being here. I don't really imagine that uh, everyone on the planet has the opportunity to become great. 
but many of us have the opportunity to touch greatness. And I have that opportunity because I was one of the students of your father at the Jewish Theological Seminary in the 1960s when the war in Vietnam was raging and, and he was rushing up and down the hallways, constantly active. And you could see that his mind was burning and his passion was burning. And I had the opportunity to take his courses and to sit in class with him. Although I must tell you that being with him in the elevator, just being next to him was feeling a sense of greatness around me. It's unbelievable. When I was at the seminary, I was taught that there were two schools of thought there, and that was the Heschel School, <laughs> School and the Kaplan School. And I was so moved but surprised when you showed the photograph of Mordechai Kaplan as one of your father's friends and associates, etc. I'm dying to know what no one in the seminary ever, ever imagined, and that is, what would a few sentences between these, these two great thinkers have been like? Can you imagine a little dialogue between Abraham Joshua Heschel and Mordechai M. Kaplan? What's your name? Moshe Levin. Oh, that's so nice. That's wonderful. Yes. I, I have to talk to you after. Okay. So, um, yes, my father. Well, it's funny you should ask my father and Mordechai Kaplan, who was also a friend of Rabbi Trepp's. Um, uh, they, they were friends. As a matter of fact, this coming Sunday, I'm going to Washington to give a lecture about their relationship, together with Mel Skult, who works on the Kaplan Diaries. And Mordechai Kaplan, who's the founder of Reconstructionist Judaism, uh, had come from Lithuania. He was born in 1881. My father was born in 1907. So it was a generation generational difference, and he taught at the seminary, and he read an essay of my father's, one of my father's first pieces in English, called An Analysis of Piety, that appeared in the Journal of Religion. I, I actually reprinted it in this book, Moral Grandeur, a collection of my father's work. But um, Kaplan read that essay, and he was so moved by it, he assigned it to his students, and he was one of the people at the seminary who was pushing for my father to be hired there. Uh, they became friends. This, my parents socialized with the Kaplans, and, uh, and had a nice relationship with them. And when it was Mordechai Kaplan's 90th birthday, it was my father who gave the keynote at the Waldorf Astoria at the lovely dinner, uh, which I attended also. And so what would they talk about? I can tell you that they were, how, how one says nowadays, they wouldn't have used this language, they were on different wavelengths. Yeah? So their understandings of Judaism were really quite different. Uh, Kaplan was influenced by the Chicago School of Theology, by you know, Henry Nelson Wyman and Shayla Matthews and so on, people like that, Protestants who talked about God is, as he put it, the power that makes for salvation, you know, sort of in the molecules, etc. Um, that wasn't my father's view. Kaplan talked about Jews creating Jewish civilization, creating uh, Torah and the sancta of Jewish life. He was influenced by Durkheim. My father was not interested in, by the way, sociology of religion. He didn't like it, uh, the social sciences. But on the other hand, both of them were concerned about Israel. Both of them were concerned about Jewish identity and Jewish education, uh, and about, of course, for Kaplan, about ethnicity, that we aren't just Jews because we go to the synagogue once a week, let's say. But there's a, a whole dimension to our all of our lives that should be infused with Jew Jewishness, and my father would certainly have agreed with that. Theologically, they were very different. My father came from a very different way of thinking about about God, about Torah, about Revelation, and 
fine. And Kaplan didn't like that about my father. My father didn't like, but my father never criticized him. He didn't criticize people by name. He said what he had to say, or he said what they didn't. But he would never say. Martin Buber had been his friend. He'd never criticized Buber by name. He just disagreed, and he said what he thought. Yeah. So, but the relationship was fine, and Kaplan was very pleased when my father made a bat mitzvah for me, because Kaplan started the bat mitzvahs with his daughters. I think that um, in the times we're living in now, it's, it's very hard to just realize just how courageous your dad was on some of the issues that he spoke out and wrote about in, in the context of those times. So I'm just wondering if you, in your, in your home life, if you ever saw your dad experience self-doubt about anything, or if he always just had this great moral clarity all throughout. Oh. You know, that's a very interesting question. Um, I don't think my father ever uh, regretted any of the things that he wrote or what he, the stances that he took. Um, there was a time, remember, when he gave a speech for the first time to free Soviet Jews, and my mother read it just before, and she said, you must tone it down, you're going to get attacked. Yeah. Um, but I don't think he felt out. I think he felt very, um, though um, he took his time to think about things, to be very careful and thought through. Uh, and also, the issue for him was in, in, well, there was a debate with Father Berrigan, Daniel Berrigan, who was a good friend, who said to my father, we should go to jail because of what the government is doing. And my father said, no, I can do more to end the war by being free and lecturing, talking to people. And then Berrigan said, but your integrity is... My father said, my integrity does not matter as much as saving children from napalm. So that was his approach. So it's really inspiring for me to hear of your father's marching in Selma and his incredible civil rights activism. And I'm really curious as to where he would stand today on the issue of Palestine and Israelis' treatments of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, as well as the American Jewish relative silence on this issue in support of the Israeli government, and how he would feel about rabbis and organizations that are standing in solidarity with the Palestinians. Well, first of all, I would say that uh, my, you should know my father died in December of 1972. And um, he, I, I, what shall I say? So first of all, he, um, at the time before he died in those last years, uh, there were issues raised about Palestinians on the West Bank living under Israeli occupation. What about it? My father felt very strongly that Palestinians should be treated properly. And he had the sense, I remember this, that the fact that this was a good thing, that somehow um, good conditions, better conditions, infrastructure, et cetera, being brought by the Israelis to Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza. And only toward the end of his life did he start to hear about things that were not going well, that were problematic, that were disturbing. And that did worry him. Uh, I think he died before he had a chance to engaged too deeply in that issue, just as he died too soon for the feminist movement 
to really raise issues regarding language, prayer book language, etc., for him to respond. But certainly he wanted peace, for one thing. Uh, he was the kind of person I used to feel who could have talked to enemies, yeah, that I just imagine, could he have talked to Arafat and changed him somehow and softened his heart? Just as could he have talked to Mayor Kahana, uh, for instance, and changed his heart? Um, I don't know. I, I used to think perhaps he could. Of course he would want peace, and of course he wouldn't want people to be suffering, whether it's Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza or within Israel, or Israelis either. Uh, and he would have worked toward that, and he would have been happy to see religious leaders working in that direction, rabbis, imams, ministers, certainly. I, I think that's pretty, would be pretty obvious. He did have one line in his book on Israel where he said, we don't worship the soil. And I think is a way of saying the 